Welcome to the Seminary Support Podcast, where you will find help to start, finish, and get the most out of your seminary experience. I'm your host, Mark McElreath. We have a special guest with us today and a very special conversation with a dear friend of mine. In fact, our guest today was my seminary dean while I was in seminary completing my Master of Divinity degree. And we've had he and his wife in our home, and they are such humble people, and yet people that the Lord has used in a mighty way throughout their lives. And I know that the things that he says today will be helpful and applicable to your life and ministry. Our guest today has a Ph.D. in Reformation and Post-Reformation Studies from Westminster Seminary. He's a U.S. Army veteran. He served on the foreign mission field, pastored in the United States, worked at the Scriptorium, and served as a seminary dean, actually served as my seminary dean, and has taught at the seminary level for many years. It's an honor to call him my friend, Dr. Herb Samworth. Welcome to Seminary Support. Thank you so much, Mark, and great to be with you tonight. Yes, sir. Well, let's begin by just getting an idea. Can you tell us about your seminary journey? I, I certainly can. Well, just to go back a, a little further, I went to college right out of high school, attended a school in Philadelphia called Drexel University, served in the military, and it was after I graduated from college, about 21, 22, and the Lord called me into, into service as a minister. But I had a military obligation, so then after I finished my military obligation, went on to study uh, at seminary, graduate school, and there I met my wife, Carolyn, and the Lord directed us to the mission field, and we thought we would really spend our lives as church planning missionaries in Peru. But the Lord had other plans. I developed some very severe allergy problems, and as a result, we were unable to go back to the field. So an opportunity opened up to pastor a church to help start a church in Millersville, Pennsylvania, and I was doing that for several years, when I got a tentative invitation uh, to teach on the seminary level. But one thing they said to me, uh, they said, Herb, if you're going to teach on seminary level, you've got to get a doctor's degree. Now I had the equivalent of what we call the MDiv. So I'm living in Millersville, which is close to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And the question would be, if I were to pursue this, what school could I attend? Well, there weren't really any that were close had I lived in Dallas or close to Dallas uh, Seminary in Texas, I probably would have attended there, but there were none available. The closest was Westminster Seminary, about 80 miles from where we lived at the time. So I went there and made application and luckily was accepted and pursued my studies there. Very good. And uh, tell me a little bit about your MDiv. Where did you earn your Master of Divinity degree? I went to what was at that time called the Columbia Bible College, now Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. And they had an undergraduate program, but they also had a graduate school of missions. And so I studied there and received what is um, what was called at that time a Bachelor of Divinity, which they have now changed to Master of Divinity. So that's where I studied. Yes, and you recommend an MDiv for a lot of seminary men. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel like the value of an MDiv is 
and why maybe you recommend that as an all around kind of seminary degree? Uh, certainly I do. The MDiv is the basic, uh, shall we call it, degree for uh, a person who's going to pastor a church. And it's also fair to say that sometimes this depends on opportunities that are open to you. Um, it may be you would have less years of education, but if you have the heart for the Lord and you really want to study and the opportunity comes open, then I encourage people to get that MDiv degree. You would get your basic languages, you would get church history, various things you would need to pastor a church. Mm -hmm. So it's really a degree for those that feel the Lord's will for their lives is to pastor a church. But you don't have to have it. It's really the spiritual mm -hmm. qualifications that are the key. Right. Yes, sir. Now, did you have that when you went to the mission field in Peru? Yes, I graduated. In fact, Carolyn and I uh, both graduated the same year. She graduated from the undergraduate. And I graduated from uh, the School of Missions. And so we were married in the year 67, 1967, spent hmm. a year back at the school, and I was the assistant dean and then, and we did deputation. So in 68, we went to the mission field. And as I said before, I thought that would be the end of formal studies for me. Right. So you, if we could take just a little time to talk about you get to the mission field, and in your mind, which probably is in the mind of nearly every missionary that goes to the field, you're going to spend your life there and, yes, then do the, and, and see fruit and I think a church planted uh, radio ministry, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yes. And then the Lord closes the door due to health issues. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, and maybe if, if there's someone that is going through that or, or, or has gone through that, how do you, how do you deal with that? The Lord changing directions like that? Well, I felt I was called to uh, the Lord's service. In some senses, where that service would be performed was more accidental. And so we're in Peru, and these uh, you'd have to know something about the country. It's If you're prone to have allergies, uh, Peru will bring it out of you. And so uh, I was having these difficulties, and I wasn't sick, but you just don't feel you have any energy and so forth. So I went to a number of doctors, and the doctor said that if I would stay there, I would develop more serious problems. So in consultation with our mission doctor, they recommended that we not go back to Peru. But we were open to where the Lord would have us go, but when we came back to the United States and were attending Grace Baptist Church here in Lancaster, then the door opened to uh, become pastor of a branch work of that church. So mm -hmm. I think it, the, the key is you want to do what the Lord's will is. Sometimes it's easy to plan your life out. You think you have what the Lord is uh, has for you, but the Lord sometimes can throw a, what to you may be a curveball or a surprise, but not in his will. And yes. so the Lord opened that door for us. Amen. So you go there, young family, you're pastoring a church. Yes. And one day you wake up and say, I'm going to earn a PhD. 
I'm sure that's not how it happened. No, I, but um, no, that, <laughs> you know, some people listening to this, they're considering taking that step, or maybe they're considering taking the next step in their in their seminary uh, program or a master's of some sort. Yes. How did the Lord work in your heart about showing you this was the next step for you, and and kind of understanding the weight of it, and and you had some work that had to be done before you could really fully enter that program. If I remember right, maybe tell us a little about how that happened. Uh, Surely. Well, I felt that uh, pastoring the church was going to be what the Lord wanted us to do. And I was very happy and am very happy. And I honestly at heart consider myself a pastor. So when the opportunity came possibly to continue on education and to teach in a seminary, the idea would be that you would be teaching potential pastors. So I sought to approach the whole idea of getting a further degree uh, from the standpoint, how would this help me teach pastors or what could I learn? And yet in the, at the same time, to be honest, uh, the advanced degrees now are considered if I could use the term uh, union card, there are certain qualifications that you have to have because uh, more and more colleges need or universities and seminaries need that accreditation uh, to attract and hold students. And so um, I knew that was ahead, but it was still from the standpoint of being a pastor. That's what I consider myself to be. And I never have deviated from that. Uh, it might be uh, I would actually be doing that or encouraging helping others toward that goal. Amen. So how did you choose Reformation and post-Reformation studies? People have, I think, interest in that, but to enter that field, you know, that's a lot bigger step than just an interest. <laughs> right. Well, I had always been a person to read and, um, I kept up a uh, little book that I would record the number of books that I would read a year. I did it just for myself. And uh, that always encouraged me. When I was in Peru, I came across books that dealt with the Great Awakening, George Whitfield, people of whom I had heard the name but really didn't know much about. So I had my own interests, my own uh, things I was interested in. So when I went to Westminster, at that time, they were really only offering one degree program in the PhD, uh, on the PhD level, and that was uh, Reformation and Post-Reformation Studies, which includes uh, church history, theology, and also some apologetics or philosophical things because you're dealing with medieval philosophy, medieval theology, and things like that. So yes, it was a big step, and we prayed about it. I, one thing that I sought to do is never make a decision of that magnitude without first thinking about what impact would this have on my children, what impact does this make on uh, my family, uh, what about the church? So I went to the leaders of the church, told them that this was an uh, opportunity presented to me to study, and what was their opinion? 
would they be willing to back me in this? I wasn't asking them to support me, but I was asking them to uh, give me what they believed would be best for the church. And they stood with me on that. They encouraged me. So carrying the load, a pastoral load, a family load, when, when did you do this work? I mean, how did this work get done? Well, uh, I took my one day a week off, <laughs> and uh, that was pretty much it. I will say for uh, about seven and a half years, with the exception of Sundays, I never touched anything on Sunday, but I did something on that program. Hmm. Now, I think it's also important to point out for me, uh, from the perspective that I sought to study, I thought, how can I turn these studies into something practical? Uh, how can I do this that's going to help me as a pastor? Mm -hmm. How is this going to make an impact on the church? If it's just you study something and it's so removed from everyday life and the life of the church, then it's more selfish or more for yourself. And I don't say it's wrong for you to do that, but that's not what I honestly tried to do. I honestly tried to turn everything that I studied, even if it were Martin Luther or Zwingli or the English Reformation, how does this impact the church? How can I use it in my ministry? So that's what I tried to do. Right. Did you see what you were studying bleed over into your preaching and into as you counseled and spoke to people? I mean, it was just you were digging that well. So is that where a lot of some material was coming from? Yes, because, um, well, one thing that really encouraged me was something that one of the teachers I had at Westminster said, and this is, this was his statement. He said, uh, when asked, why did he study church history? And his reply was, well, I studied church history because it was the most practical of the academic disciplines. Hmm. And I like that academic discipline, but I like the application. And it is really um, sad when we separate the academic from the practical, uh, because all true learning should lead to practice, hmm. and all true practice should be based on learning, solid biblical learning. So yeah. I have never in my own thinking and um, still can still think the same way today that there's not an inherent uh, shall we say separation between academic learning and practical application and mm -hmm. if I could put in one one thought here yes uh, one uh, concern that I would have and, and I'm just speaking as an individual is that if you have professors in uh, seminaries and other places that are what are called research professors. They are exempt from teaching any classes. Uh, they just work on research. They're the ones that uh, write the books and they're excellent, excellent students. They're very strong academic, but they miss that contact with students. And I think that hurts them. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, if I read if I read correctly, it was a seminary that started. Uh, maybe it was uh, one of the early Baptist seminaries. But every teacher, every instructor in that seminary, 
was required to teach a biblical course every semester to keep mm. that uh, person in the classroom, to keep them in the Bible. And I thought that was that was great. Yes, was sir. Great. I th- and I think you touch on important an important facet of especially seminary education, not disconnecting it from reality and from life. Oh, and, absolutely. And keeping a touch with people helps, I think, ground everything we're learning, whether, like you said, it's Martin Luther or it's the Puritans or whatever it may be. It grounds all of that in reality. Yes, sir. Y- yes, sir. Now, if you have one era or person or part of church history where if and you could spend time there where would you go uh well i've had the opportunity to study much of the english reformation if i remember correctly you may have been in the class yes sir. <laughs> <laughs> but but lately my interests have kind of uh shifted off to the french reformation you say why that well it has such a tragedy, such a tragedy, because there was a period of time in France where it appeared the Reformation was really to take hold. But a, a number of things intervened. One was called the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, in which there were a number of uh, Protestants, or what were called Huguenots, put to death. And then even after those wars of religion were over, and there was a man, a king by the name Henry IV, put out an edict of toleration, the Edict of Nantes, and that was revoked in the year 1685. And then it was only uh, 104 years later that the uh, French Revolution took place. Hmm. And we just celebrated that two days ago, the storming of the Bastille. And to me, France is is a great tragedy uh, from being on the cusp of truly accepting the word of God in a true reformation of the church. They uh, hardened themselves, as it were. The leaders resisted that. And they have reaped a, a terrible, terrible harvest. The that that's where I feel that history is just so practical. What happens to a nation when they reject the word of God? Mm-hmm. What happens when the officials turn their back on the word of God? And and there's a, we can make all types of applications to that, mm-hmm. even in the days in which you and I are living. Do you see cycles when you look into church history of how, whether it's individuals or it's nations or it's a group of people, how they react to the Bible? You see things the same way happening today. Can you make some? Can you make some maybe specific application to that? Well, if there was one thing I believe that the true reformers wanted to do, and that would include uh, Zwingli down in Zurich, that would include. Martin Luther, that would include your English Reformation. Any reformer believed that the Bible needed to be taught to the people. Mm. And so the, the, the real reformers were really preachers. Mm-hmm. Um, even William Tyndale, before uh, he was basically had to leave England in order to translate, he was unable to do it there, was actually preaching in the church 
when he was a little sod married man or he used to go down and preach. Martin Luther was a great preacher. Zwingli was a great preacher. Now we might not agree with everything uh, in their theology. Uh, John Calvin was a great preacher. And they felt the key to a reformation was getting the Bible into the hearts and lives of the people. And the way to do it was not writing learned theological treatises, which many of them did, but by preaching the word of God in churches. I don't think there's any other way. We could take a little more of that today, I think. <laughs> yes, I, I do believe we could. I hope you enjoyed our conversation so far. This is actually just the beginning. I've decided to take this conversation and divide it into two parts because we continue talking about some things, but I want this to be in a bite-sized portion where you can enjoy this at once. And then next week... I'll be putting up part two so you can listen to that. So thank you for joining me. I know these are helpful things, and I hope there's some things you can apply to your own life and your own seminary journey as you listen to them. Well, thank you again for joining me today. If you haven't already, please subscribe so you get notified every time a new episode is launched. Take a moment to leave a review for us. Share today's episode if you think this would be helpful for someone else. Find me on Twitter, at Mark McElreath Jr., and please send episode ideas and any feedback you have to theseminarypodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can find these episodes at www.seminarysupport.com. I'm your host, Mark McElreath. And remember, nothing will ever take the place of learning from the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls out, learn of me. And there's an open invitation to that classroom for all of us. <laughs>